Well, we're turning in our Bibles this morning, not too far to turn. We're turning to Genesis and the chapter 1. Genesis and the chapter 1. And we're just going to read the first verse together of Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 and the verse 1. This is the word of God. It reads, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. We won't read the rest of this chapter this morning, but we know that it explains and it expands on that opening statement that we've just read. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Let's pray together with God's word open on our laps. Our Father, we bow in thy presence just now. And Father, we ask that there would be a holy stillness in our gathering this morning. And we ask, Father, that as we turn to your word just now, that the voice of God would be pleased to speak. Father, we pray with the hymn writer beyond the sacred page. We seek thee, Lord. So, Father, be pleased to speak to our hearts. Father, I ask for your help. I ask, Father, for a fresh filling of the Spirit of God. And I ask, Father, that anything that is of me this morning would be completely forgotten and all that is of you would be remembered. Hear our prayer, O God. Speak to us, we pray. And we ask this in the Saviour's name. Amen. Over the winter months, God willing, uh, we want to take time to look and study these early chapters in Genesis. And we're, we're giving the title of this particular series back to the beginning. And you'll notice on the screen that it says Genesis Volume 1. It's my intention in the Lord's will uh, to preach through the whole book of Genesis, but we won't do it all at once in case you get fed up with me talking about Genesis for a long time. It's a very long book. Uh, And we're going to begin in this first volume, if you like, of sermons, considering the first 11 chapters of Genesis And over these first few weeks of this series, we're going to be dealing with Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. And in truth, there's probably no section of scripture as controversial as these chapters. So much so that even many Christians don't know how to treat them, and they just glaze over them because they don't know how to respond to the text. And yet in the same breath, I have to say... I have to say to you that there are few sections of Scripture that are as vital as these verses that we'll consider over the next few weeks. Now, of course, all Scripture is given by inspiration, but what I mean when I say that this section of Scripture holds vital importance is that if we get our understanding of the first three chapters wrong, we'll get our understanding of the rest of Scripture wrong. You see, Pastor John MacArthur has said this. He says this. He says, what we believe about creation 
And what we believe about Genesis has implications all the way to the end of Scripture. It has implications with regards to the truthfulness of Scripture, implications as to the Gospel, and implications as to the end of human history. And all this is wrapped up in how we understand the book of Genesis. Really what we're trying to do, we're attempting to introduce the book today and we're going to consider these first four words that we find in scripture in the beginning, God. So let's go back to the beginning. We'll think about the fifth word next week. We're dealing today with the first four words and what I want to do today is to equip you, the church, to have answers to the world when they question the existence of God. And we're considering the title, The Existence of God. Now the name of the book, Genesis, it means beginning. And here in Genesis, we'll get the details of the beginning of the universe. We'll get the details of the beginning of the world. We'll get the details of the beginning of life, the beginning of the human race, the beginning of male and female. We get the beginning of work and the responsibility that we have towards the earth. We have the beginning of marriage. We have the beginning of sin. We have the beginning of evil. We have the beginning of corruption. And we have the beginning of hope. And that's just in the first three chapters, by the way. And it's important that we grasp here, as we set out, we'll not understand the rest of the Bible until we understand the opening chapters of Genesis. And really, when you stop and you think for a moment, there are two main themes that the Bible addresses the whole way through. And these are themes that are extremely relevant to us here in the 21st century today. In fact, these two themes of scripture are actually two primary themes that occupy the mind of every person in these days. Throughout many years, these themes, they have been addressed by journalists and commentators and politicians and psychologists and philosophers, and they've been addressed by the medical world. And there are primary themes that are addressed and by our world leaders when they all get together. And here's the two things. What has gone wrong with the world? And how do we put it right? What has gone wrong with the world? And how do we put it right? Those are the two themes of scripture. Genesis chapter 1 to 3 tells us what has gone wrong with the world. And the rest of the Bible tells us how God is going to put it right. So if you're to understand the rest of the Bible, you need to understand the first three chapters. Like in all things in life, unless we have a proper diagnosis of the problem, we can never produce a proper solution to the problem. And that is why we won't be rushing through these early verses in Genesis because they address some of the most ultimate questions in life. Where did the universe come from? Why are we here? Why do we behave the way we do? Is there a God? Why do we have to die? Is there hope in our world? And all of these issues and questions are addressed in these early chapters in Genesis. Now I would like to suggest to you that the subject of Genesis chapter 1 is not creation. But I would like to suggest to you that the subject of Genesis chapter 1 is the creator. God 
is the subject of this chapter. And even in these first couple of verses, we learn some very specific things about God. You know, the thing is, when you actually read through the first chapter of Genesis, you will find the name God mentioned 32 times. 32 times in the first chapter of the Bible, the word God is found. Elohim, God. And God is the subject. Of Genesis chapter 1. And in fact, at the very beginning, we discover that God's character is being revealed to us from the very start. You see, we see first of all that God, he is pre-existent. In the beginning, God created. In other words, when the beginning began, it was God who was there to initiate the beginning. If you can follow that. Time and this universe has a beginning That's common sense. That's logic. And God was there before this universe began. We learn from the very start that God is pre-existent. We also learn that God is personal. In this chapter we'll see that God said something, he saw it, and then he called it something. And this pattern is repeated throughout chapter 1. God said, God saw, God called. God said, God saw, God called. And to say and to see and to call are three very personal activities. And therefore it's clear to see that we have a very personal God that we're talking about as well. But also we see that God is powerful. God said, let there be light. And do you know what happened? There was light. He spoke all things into existence. And this is important. He made everything from nothing. That makes him very powerful. So in the first verse of the Bible, we immediately discover that God is pre-existent, that he is personal, and that he's powerful. And while Genesis is a book of beginnings, it's not about the beginning of God. The Bible does not explain God prior to the beginning. It doesn't need to. It assumes his existence and everything else in the Bible stands on the foundation of the opening words of scripture in the beginning God. He was already there. Now Genesis will cause us to ask many crucial questions and it causes people around to ask many crucial questions. But the most crucial of those questions we're going to answer this morning is does God exist? Does God exist? If we get that question wrong, we'll get everything else in life wrong as well. If you get the answer to to, does God exist wrong, your whole understanding of who you are, why the world actually exists, how we are to behave, what is valuable, all the answers to those questions will be influenced by your answer to the question, does God exist? Genesis 1 doesn't try and give an explanation or present an apologetic, that just means an argument for the existence of God, it simply assumes God is already there and he actively creates the heavens and the earth. But how do we know that's true? I'm sure you've been asked the question before, how do you prove there's a God? How do you prove God or a question similar to that? And the first thing we need to ask is, is it proof or evidence that we need? You see, the first issue of the question, how do you prove God, is it's a badly worded question. You see, the word proof is a scientific word. 
And there's some t- there are some things that are provable and some things that aren't. Please follow my train of thought here. I think this is useful. We could talk about science. And the scientific method is to establish facts on the basis of observation, repetition, and measurement. So a scientist will observe something Then they'll repeat this over and over and over again. And then they'll try and measure this to see what's happening. And they'll establish what they call scientific facts. For example, Isaac Newton was one day sitting under an apple tree. Apple fell and hit his head. And he wondered why the apple came down towards the ground and didn't travel in the other direction. He quickly realized it wasn't just apples that fell to the ground, but absolutely everything did. And he began to observe. And he began to measure. And he observed over and over and over again. And as he measured, he discovered that things that are heavier hit the ground harder, and things that are lighter don't hit the ground as hard. And he he came up with this theory of gravity, which after much testing became the law of gravity. And he discovered these heavier things were hitting the ground harder, and he used this as science. It deals with proof, and it deals with things we can see, and it deals with material things. But non-material things are not observable, or repeatable, or measurable. So you can't apply the scientific method of proof to things in history, or philosophy, or the moral issues of life, or religious knowledge. You have to prove those. You have. You cannot prove those things. For example, you and I can't prove that Julius Caesar ever existed. We can't use do that by scientific proof. Now we're told that he lived in the first century BC. He ruled over the Roman Empire, but we can't observe that. We we can't repeat that event the way science would ask us to. We can't measure that event directly because history is non-observable and non-repeatable. However, although we can't prove Julius Caesar ever lived, we can look for the evidence of Julius Caesar. Do you see the difference? You can dig up coins that have his head on them. And these prove the existence of Caesar. There are documents that you can read from his days. And they, they're evidence that he actually walked. There's very strong evidence that Julius Caesar did live and really existed. But you actually can't prove it. And that's why the question, can you prove God, is a bad question. Because you can't apply scientific standards of proof to non-material things. What you can do is provide evidence. And belief or disbelief in Julius Caesar and also God must be based on the evidence that there is to show their existence. So therefore, really, this, the, the final detail is it's, you believe it or you don't. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. Look it up and have a look at it in your Bibles this morning. Hebrews 11, verse 3. This is what we read. Through faith. We understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made from things which do appear. In other words, by faith, you believe it or you don't. By faith, says Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews, by faith we believe God created all things that we see from nothing. He spoke everything into existence. Now, that word in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, that's used, that word faith that's used, it isn't describing blind naivety. But it's rather based on the evidence presented to us through God's word and things outside God's word that we trust that there is a God who created all things. 
I'm sure you've seen it at the swimming pool in your holidays, the young child at the edge of the pool, uh, king to jump in. But, but they're only willing to jump in if their parent is there to catch them and to stop them from drowning. Now that child doesn't know for certain that their parent will catch them, but all the evidence is there. There's the parent and they're standing with their outstretched arms and they're standing a suitable, suitable distance away. They aren't too far away. They're not too close either. And all the evidence is there that that parent will catch them. But the child has to take a leap of faith. Trusting that all the evidence that is in front of them, with all the evidence that's in front of them, that they will be caught. And the child jumps and takes this leap into the clear evidence and almost always finds that the, all the evidence stands to be true as their parent catches them. And in truth, there comes a point that we can see all the clear evidence of God all around us and we have to take a leap of faith. Not into the dark, but into the evidence. And if God is not God, absolutely nothing will happen. But if God is God, you'll find him. If you seek him with all your heart. So as we approach the book of Genesis, there are really only two options. You either believe what it says, or you don't. And quite frankly, believing in a supernatural God who made everything is the only possible rational explanation for this universe, and for purpose, and for destiny. You know, the second thing that Hebrews chapter 11 tells us is found in verse 6. It says there, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now, there's two very clear things that can be seen in this verse. So if all the evidence clearly set out in front of you, says the verse, you come to the point where you have to take the step of faith, trusting that God is the great creator who also became the saviour and stepped into his creation who turned against him to save humans from his own wrath. And it takes you to look at all the evidence of Scripture and to believe it. Verse 6 of Hebrews tells us, For he that comes to God must believe that he is, and God will reward them that diligently seek him. Right from the first phrase in this whole book, not just Genesis, but the Bible, mankind is faced with the reality that he has not got what it takes to answer life's deepest questions. That's why you and I both need revelation. That's why we have the Bible. It is the revelation, not just of truth and origins, but it's actually the revelation of God himself. And the character of who he is, his personality, his attributes, and what he requires for us as hum- of us as human beings, and the message of how we can be made right with him. And it's why we have the Bible. It's a, and it's, it's the message of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. We've got, we don't have what it takes, but we need God to reveal Himself to us. As Jeremiah chapter 10 verse 23 puts it, the way of man is not in Himself. So if it's not in Himself, it's, if the way of man is not in Himself, it has to come from outside Himself. And that's where our salvation comes from. The answers to life's deepest questions and indeed our redemption comes from outside ourselves. You see, right at the very beginning of the whole Bible, we see that God is presented to us as a God of grace and a God who gives what we cannot achieve. 
And it's our responsibility to receive God's divine revelation and to believe it. And sadly, that's where many people stumble. How do we receive God's grace? Well, this is fundamental. And that's what you're going to hear just now to how we approach God. Not only how we approach the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1, but how we approach the whole Bible. We've got to come to to terms with the fact that the Bible primarily is not a book to be explained, but it's a book to be believed. This is fundamental because it's not knowledge that will get us to God. It is revelation and in fact it's faith in God's revelation. We read in 1 John, it is faith that overcomes the world. You can have all knowledge in this world and you won't overcome. It's faith that overcomes the world in the Lord Jesus Christ the revelation of God and his son and it's the and the evidence that he gives us so graciously outside of ourselves something that we can't acquire or achieve ourselves he imparts his revelation to us and our reaction and response should be to believe and to bow to his majesty and to bow to his mastery you know, it thrills me to see how God doesn't take it upon himself to justify his own existence in Genesis 1 verse 1 or explain for our satisfaction how he does what he does. He just says in the beginning, God. And those who trust this statement by faith with the clear evidence all around, Hebrews 11 verse 6 tells me that God rewards those who seek him diligently, carefully thoughtfully and the truth is I could ask you a question this morning I could say um, that there's a man who exists and his name is Stephen Bonjum Assisi I could ask this congregation do you believe that there is a Stephen Bonjum Assisi and I could ask for a show of hands of people who don't believe this man exists and maybe a few would put up their hand and to be honest that's quite foolish Because there are 8 billion people in our world and you can't deny that there's a distinct possibility that there could be a Stephen Bonjumasisi. Then I could ask the question, does anyone believe that there's a possibility that there's a possibility that Stephen Bonjumasisi could exist? There's a possibility and I would imagine that most hands would go up because when you consider the amount of people in the world, you're happy to say, well yes, that's a possibility. Then I could ask for a show of hands for those who believe that Stephen Bonjum Assisi does exist. And I would imagine in this room that my hand would be the only one that would go up because I know him. He used to lead the work of Child Evangelism Fellowship in the country of Uganda. He's a godly man who loves to see children one for Christ. And I met him back in 2013 when I was out there. And when it comes to God, with all the evidence that is there... It would be foolish to say that he doesn't exist. If you're finding that category, the Bible's something to say about you. The Bible says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. People that say there's no God, the theological term for them is atheists. Atheist being God, atheist being the negative, and they don't believe that there is a God. Then the majority of people you would find are open to the possibility that there, there could be a God. And the term for someone who's open to that possibility is agnostic. But then you have theists. 
And that's people who believe that God exists. So the Bible says it's foolish to say there's no God. And I would like to suggest that it's unnecessary to be agnostic and to say that you don't know if God exists because the God of the Bible, he's there to be known. That's the whole message of scripture. If you seek him, you will find him. And therefore, it makes complete sense to have your faith placed in God. You don't need to have the answers or arguments to counteract every worldview. Through experience and revelation, many of us here have come to realize that God created this world. We marred it with our sin. Christ died for your sin. You sought him for salvation. And dear believer, today we enjoy the benefits of a relationship with our creator. Praise the Lord. You see, suppose Stephen Bonjumasisi had one million pounds that he was willing to give to you and all you had to do was find him. Well, I'd say a million pounds would make life a bit smoother for you. And I'm sure that what you would do is you would make it your business to seek out this man and to find him so that you could have that one million pounds. You'd go all the way, you'd find where he is, you'd finally knock his door and you'd say, where's my one million pounds? And he would give it to you, you would seek him out. And if you're found under the sound of my voice this morning and you aren't trusting God for salvation, and it, su- it suggests to me that you don't fully believe this opening statement found in God's word. In the beginning, God. You see, we've talked about proof or evidence. There's plenty of evidence that God exists. He does. He does. God the Father has sent his Son and he saved me. I have a personal relationship with him. I spoke to him this morning in my study. I communed with him as I opened his word. He spoke with me. In this service, we have spoken with God the Father as we have prayed to him. We've opened his word and we hear his voice. And the truth is, for you, it's either you believe it or you don't. And the question that must be asked then is, where is the evidence then? Where is all this evidence that you've been talking about, Peter? I want to finish this morning by dealing with two types of evidence that clearly show us that God exists. There's objective evidence, and there's subjective evidence for God's existence. First of all, let's think of objective evidence. Now, don't get worried about the terms. Objective simply means that it can be physically seen. It can be seen with your eye. These are objects, hence objective. And everything that happens has a cause. If I want, want, want to make a cake, it isn't going to make itself. And there has to be a cause. Someone has to put the ingredients together and bake it to cause the cake to form. And in the same way, in order for our universe to form, there had to be a first cause. There had to be something to get it started. And science has never, ever been able to answer this question. They've come up with theories, but none of these theories have ever been conclusive. And the point of the matter is, God exists outside of time and he is the one who set all things in motion. He is the one who created all the things around us that we see. Science is looking for a first cause. If only they would turn to scripture, they would find the first cause and that is God himself. He is the originator of all things. And the detail that we see around us today, that allows this world to, that allows this world to be sustained 
could only exist if there's an intelligent designer. I wonder, did you know that if the rotation of the earth was just slightly more wrong, we would either burn or freeze to death? If we were slightly closer to the sun, we would burn to a crisp. If this planet were slightly further away from the sun, we would freeze. Just ten miles from where we're standing just now, there's a furnace burning at the core of the earth, and we're protected from that by heaps of rocks. If there was slightly more water in the world, there would be no land to live on. We as human beings need oxygen to breathe, and we produce carbon dioxide as we exhale, and it, it, it just would so happen to be that plants and trees around us, as they need carbon dioxide to live, and their waste project, product is oxygen, thus allowing us to live. There's way too much detail for all of this to happen by chance. And if you say it happened by chance, you're abandoning explanations for all that I have just detailed. But if you say that's design, there's a designer there, you must ask, who is the designer? The Bible has the answer very clearly. In the beginning, go on. And even as we look around us with our naked eye and look at the objective things all around us and behold the beautiful things, the Bible says this, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. So that's objective evidence. We could spend Sunday after Sunday after Sunday talking about the detail of this planet and the clear evidence of a designer. But then there's subjective evidence as well. And this is to do with experience. And each person who's a child of God has experiential knowledge that God truly exists. The child of God is able to say, I know him I have believed. And I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I committed unto him against that day. In Jeremiah 29 and verse 13, we read these words. And ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. Listen, when it comes to knowledge and understanding this world, maybe you are someone, maybe you listen in, maybe you even sit in these pews this morning. I can understand what makes you ask questions and seek for answers. I can but it isn't head knowledge that allows you to know God. It's the attitude of your heart. You see, if you don't want God, you'll never find him. But this verse in Jeremiah tells me he's available to those who will seek him. And ye shall seek me. Listen. And find me. When ye shall search for me. With all your heart. And when you start seeking for God, you come to realise that he's been seeking for you for a very long time. For the Lord Jesus says, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. And the evidence of creation, of a God of creation, is all around us. It's objective in creation. It's subjective. Evident in the lives of many Christians who testify of the evidence of God in their very own lives. And now really the question comes to you. There's clear evidence of God. Do you believe it? Or not? In the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow in thy presence. And Father, we thank you that for many of us who sit here and listen, that we don't need a presentation of the evidence of God because we have seen it for ourselves. We see the beauty of creation all around us. We see the mountain range. We see the stars of the night sky. We see how you even control the boundaries of the sea. We believe that you created all this by the power of your voice. And Father, we bow to your majesty and we bow to your mastery and we worship you as the God of all creation. But Father, we come and we realize that we are a people who marred that creation with our sin. And Father, we were once separated from thee. But Father, right from the very beginning, there was a redemption plan. And the Lord Jesus Christ came, the perfect man, fully God, fully man, went to the cross of Calvary and died for us. Father, I thank you that the Lord Jesus said that he came to seek and to see if that which was lost. And Father, I pray if there's someone who is seeking for hope in this life today, someone who isn't trusting the Lord Jesus Christ as their saviour, that even this day they would look at all the evidence in front of them and they would take that step of faith. Father, if there's someone who's been seeking for you for a long time or seeking for answers, Father, may they find the answer here in your word today. Trust it and believe it and be saved for time and eternity. Father, we pray all this for your glory, and we ask it in the Saviour's name. Amen.